Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences is a proud sponsor of this I Believe podcast. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. All right, now we're live. Wonderful. Okay, you guys, so as everybody is jumping on live and as you guys are listening to the recording from the podcast, um, thank you again for being here. I'm Danae Peterson. I'm your host here on the I Believe podcast, and we are thrilled to have Dr. Orloff with us from Philadelphia. She is so kind for taking the time. So before we jump into her presentation and hopefully we can answer some questions on liver-directed therapies, um, let me just make sure to run through some announcements. So first off, thank you guys for anyone who participated in Giving Tuesday with us. If you have a fundraiser that's still going, um, please make sure to go through and end your fundraiser so that we can um, total all of our donations and just get that announcement out there. Um, Next up would be that we have Steps for Sight registration that's coming soon, later at the end of this month. So keep an eye out for that. Make sure you're on the email list if you're not already and make sure to get registered for Steps for Sight when we are ready to go for January. Um, More announcements from 2022 Steps are coming, so just make sure to keep an eye out for that as well. And I just want to make a plug for something that I posted earlier today. Um, And I'm just going to kind of like lead it with this, but we really have to advocate for ourselves and that's hard, right? Like we have a rare cancer, it's already hard enough. So like, then you throw in this idea of like, we have to self-advocate and we really have to kind of be this grassroots movement of people who make sure that pharma companies and researchers and doctors, like that they know we are important and we matter and we want research happening. We want an impact made in the world of ocular melanoma. Um, We have amazing doctors like Dr. Orloff, Dr. Sato, so many oncologists who work so hard to take care of their patients um, and who research. And and it's exhausting for us as patients to deal with this diagnosis. But if or whenever you have the chance to just talk about ocular melanoma on social media in any any capacity, um, please just remember to share and make a fundraiser for a cure insight to help our organization to continue to help patients and to be able to aid patients who need it to travel if they need treatment somewhere else, um, to give resources to all of you guys like this podcast, and to continue um, to locate highly relevant research that we can uh, be a part of as an organization. So if you have connections to anyone who has uh, a business at the end of the year that maybe could use tax-deductible donations, we would love for you to make a plug for us and just ask if they are willing to do that. Um, make a donation to a cure insight for the end of the year. If you have an employer and they are willing to double, uh, double a donation to a nonprofit, then ask if um, they will consider doing that for a cure insight. And, you know, same goes for anyone with your family and your friends and your community. But to make it easy, if you head to the pin post here on Facebook or on Instagram, you'll find a shareable post labeled, all I want for Christmas is a cure. And so we just ask that you guys share that and just ask your community to donate even just $5 this month. Um, All of us, we want this. We want a cure, Omis. So let's just take a a deep breath and let's recognize that we are the ones who can share about this and we have the power to make a big impact. And let's just keep it front and center in people's minds, even with the busyness of everything going on. So that's all I'm going to say about that. 
Uh, I'm actually going to go ahead and welcome Dr. Orloff. She is an associate professor of medicine and a medical oncologist at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital and Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So Dr. Orloff, thank you so much for being here. All right, thanks, Danae. Um, and hi, everyone. I can't see you all, but um, hopefully you're out there um, listening. And I think this gets recorded uh, to be able to be watched later, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so hopefully that's the case. Um, so what I thought we would do today is talk about liver-directed therapies. Um, you know, this is a type of treatment that is not a treatment option for all cancers, and it is something that is unique to uveal melanoma. Um, and, uh, and I'd like to just go through a few slides just to kind of set the stage, and then we'll open it up for more of a uh, discussion. So I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. Oh, hold on. I got to swap that. All right. How does this look, Danae? Okay. Can't see you because I'm in, I'm in screen share. So I just want to make sure it looks okay. Okay. So I can see it. It looks good. Okay. And then um, I am going to see if I can do anything. And you know what? Actually, if you take your camera, um, bottom line of the settings, there's going to be a spot that says cam in the Riverside screen. And if you take your camera off, and I'm going to take mine off, I believe it will make this bigger for people. Um, I think my cam, go. All right, my cam is off. Okay, and then go back to your slides. Back to my slides. Perfect. All right, I'm just looking on Facebook to see if we see everything better. All right. I can see it. Good. Yeah, I think that's better. I took my camera off and since I'm no longer with the camera, I think that will help it um, show up bigger. So it looks good. Perfect. Okay. So like I said, today we will be um, talking about liver-directed treatments uh, for metastatic uveal melanoma. All right. So um, just, just a brief overview of what we'll chat about, you know, the rationale for liver-directed therapy, because I think sometimes that's not always super clear. Uh, the types of liver-directed therapy that are out there that we consider kind of standard of care that you could really get, you know, off a clinical trial, um, all things that we certainly offer here at Jefferson. Some of the types of liver-directed therapy that are still uh, considered investigational. Um, and then, you know, I think who is a candidate, actually, I moved that up. We're going to kind of talk early about who a candidate, who is a candidate for liver-directed therapy, and then some limitations and considerations. So why liver-directed therapy for liver mets and uveal? Um, as many of you know, um, uh, about 90 plus percent of, of metastatic uveal melanoma patients will have liver metastasis at some point in their disease. Often it is the first site of metastasis. That's why, you know, we very much um, follow patients looking at their liver first. We say kind of liver kind of on a scale of one to 10, we care about the liver kind of one through nine, and then, you know, lung and other things, you know, kind of down, down in the list. So, you know, frequent imaging of the liver, very important. Um, and really, even if there is extra hepatic disease, the liver mets are often the source of, of life limiting disease. Um, and so, so that's just kind of the background. And then the rationale for the approach more kind of scientifically um, is that 
the liver is an interesting um, place in that it has dual blood supply. It gets about 75% of its blood flow from the portal vein and about a quarter of it from the hepatic artery. So it is a little bit redundant, but actually liver tumors obtain the majority of their blood supply from the hepatic artery. So you can take advantage of this um, and use transarterial catheter therapy to, to, develop, uh, to deliver localized treatments to the liver tumors while really sparing the normal liver parenchyma that's really getting its blood supply from the vein. And you can often deliver medications to the liver tumors in a higher concentration than you could achieve if you gave them uh, systemically. So, you know, the main limitations I would say to liver-directed therapy are it's not a systemic therapy, right? We are just treating the liver most of the time. That's with a caveat and asterisks that I'll talk about in a minute. Um, and it, it's really based on institutional expertise. Um, you know, I, I always give this talk and I somewhat feel like an imposter um, because I'm not the one that actually does these procedures. Um, you know, here at Jefferson, we have a team really of three dedicated interventional radiologists, um, Dr. Dave Eshelman, Karin Gonzalez, and Rob Adama who are the IR docs, you know, they're trained, specialized trained radiologists that do this procedure um, in all of our uveal melanoma patients. And not every institution, um, you know, has that expertise. So who is a candidate for liver-directed therapy? Um, really, I would say anyone with hepatic-dominant liver metastasis um, and appropriate liver function. So, you know, appropriate liver function, really the bilirubin um, is something that we consider uh, to be kind of a hard line for most liver-directed therapies. Um, bilirubin over two, sometimes it's a little tricky. Um, um, it can be unsafe to give liver-directed therapy. And so for some patients, liver-directed therapy in any form is a great first-line treatment um, because a lot of the treatments have kind of in the, when you look at other treatment options, a lot of liver-directed treatments have more of a minimal commitment, um, often kind of monthly, you know, I would say for, for some of our standard of care options, things like radioembolizations, kind of like a one and done. Um, and patients are really able to maintain quality of life because there's, since uh, there's few, if any, kind of in-between side effects. So it's not to say that these treatments don't have side effects, but kind of once you get through the treatment, a lot of patients are able to maintain the quality of life in between because they're not taking a pill daily or have some of the more kind of lingering or unpredictability um, of uh, side effects from things like immunotherapy. And so when do we use it? Like I said, it can be for use first line. Sometimes we use it upfront um, if there's really bulky liver metastasis that we need to control and then patients go on to a systemic therapy. Sometimes we save it kind of to rescue the liver um, if, um, if systemic therapy treatments are not controlling the liver. And sometimes we can use it in combination with systemic therapy. Um, that's really only in the case of if someone's on systemic therapy that's not a clinical trial. You can't just sprinkle in liver-directed therapy if someone's on a clinical trial with another drug. And, and I would say generally, it's a discussion where liver-directed therapy fits in. Um, for any of you out there listening who, you know, have been a patient here at Jefferson, um, you know, it is a conversation. It is a discussion where we talk about, you know, what's kind of maybe best medically and what makes the most sense uh, logistically, um, you know, where it fits in with other systemic therapies and trials and different things. So it is definitely not a one-size-fits-all, um, definitely a discussion with your uh, provider and team. So why do we think liver-directed therapy, if it's just treating the liver, um, can improve outcomes? Um, this was a retrospective review of patients we, we did here at Jefferson, really just kind of globally looking at how did patients do when we gave them systemic therapy first versus how did patients do if we gave them liver-directed therapy first. Granted, the caveat here is when we talk about systemic therapies, we're talking like 
70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s. So certainly not with the systemic therapies that we have now, um, like, you know, the most recently FDA approved Kimtrak or other immunotherapies. But that said, it looked like patients who got um, liver directed therapy first um, in kind of this more modern cohort um, really did um, really did better. And so here's just the survival curves looking at that. If you really look at cohort two and three, um, their overall survival um, seemed to be significantly improved than those who got systemic therapy first. Obviously, this is all changing as we have more effective systemic therapies um, and, and hopefully more coming down the pike. But it is just a sign that if you can control the liver with liver-directed therapy, um, you know, that can improve overall survival in patients. So what are the types of liver-directed therapy? Um, not all of these are offered everywhere, but I'll, I'll just mention kind of what we um, offer, tend to offer and have here at Jefferson. So one of the standard of care treatments that we have here is something that's actually been kind of homegrown um, at Jefferson, Dr. Takami Sato and team. Um, now, you know, better part of 20 years ago, developed this treatment, something called immunoembolization. So it's a combination of cutting off the blood supply to the tumors, um, which would kind of, you know, increase what we call tumor antigen or really causing the tumor to die a little bit and kind of show itself to the immune system. In addition to giving a little bit of a, an immune boost with something called GMCSF and IL-2. Um, and on the right here, you can see this is kind of what the angiogram looks like. So this is what the interventional radiologists are actually looking at when they put the cat catheter in. Hopefully you can see my mouse. So this is actually the catheter going in. And this is the contrast that goes through. And you can see these kind of lighter gray balls at the end of this like uh, tree. Um, and those are the tumors. So I would say kind of one, two. And then this is actually the patient two months later going into treat. You can actually see that the tumor is basically almost gone. So this is just one instance of, of a patient who really had a great response to immunoembolization. Um, we have looked back retrospectively. Again, this is a treatment that's been given since at least the early 2000s. Um, and, you know, it, it's not been in a kind of head-to-head -head against, um, you know, other types of treatments necessarily other than bland embolization, which was the one study. But um, the median OS was about 16.8 uh, months, and the OS at one year is actually 70%, which is actually similar to some of the more recent systemic therapy trials. Um, but what was really unique is that there was patients um, who really had um, an exceptional response uh, living greater than three years. Um, and so we actually found that in this cohort of patients, about 15% of patients had an exceptional response to IE, some of which who only needed IE for, for the larger part of, of their uh, treatment course, um, or who only needed a handful of IEs and then actually went uh, had, a, had a decent treatment-free um, interval. And so you can see here in this median OS for group A, which were patients who are surviving greater than three years, their actually median was about 52 months. And here's just an example of a patient who, um, this is their MRI initially in 2010. This is the tumor, the kind of darker gray spot. And this is actually 2017. And all they were still getting in this time was intermittent IE. And you can actually see the tumor is actually a bit smaller. It's still there. Um, but And they had no other tumors developed. So this is one of our kind of um, exceptional responders to, to IE. Um, so IE for us is a good first line therapy. Um, or a therapy to follow systemic therapy. Um, and like I said, for it's very well tolerated. And for some patients, it's really the only treatment they need for, for a good portion of time. Um, another type of treatment is called radioembolization. Um, this involves uh, kind of the same procedure going in through the hepatic artery and the groin, 
um, and delivering tiny radioactive beads uh, to the tumor. So similar in some ways, you can actually think to the plaque radiation that some of you have had in your eye. So it's really focused uh, delivery of, of radiation particles. Um, there's been a number of experience published. Um, we did a prospective trial here where we actually looked at patients who got IE, then radioembolization, or radioembolization, then IE. Um, and you can see the, the data um, on the right. Um, both of the overall survivals were uh, a bit similar. Um, and you can see that, you know, for, for partial response, this is when they got the, the RE. Um, radioembolization, you know, was around 33 or 39. So about a third of patients actually had a partial response, no complete responses. And then a number of other patients had stable disease, more so having stable disease in group A who were getting it first than group B, because you could say that the patients in group B um, uh, actually had failed kind of their prior therapy. So, um, but overall survival ended up being about the same. Um, so another type of treatment we offer is something called chemoembolization, and I would say that this has been historically reserved for patients with very dominant um, large liver tumors or greater than 50% of their liver involved. Um, and um, it, it can actually, for these patients who have rapidly progressing large tumors, really kind of pull patients, as we kind of say, back off the cliff. So um, there was a trial of 50 treatment IU patients who showed up with really bulky tumor, um, and we had a disease control rate of about 72%. Um, you know, unfortunately, um, still the one-year overall survival is not as good as we would like, but it, it did kind of pull them back kind of off that cliff. And you could argue that if we had a, you know, maybe a, um, a effective systemic therapy to kind of back this up initial uh, control, you know, we might've had a better overall response. Um, and hopefully that's where we're headed. But with chemoembolization, we do have a clinical trial ongoing right now that we're actually enrolling patients with much more limited tumor um, as first line. And um, the data is not yet um, out there, um, but it does look like this treatment may also be very helpful in patients with actually more limited tumor. And then here on the right, you can just see an example, patient with large tumor, these kind of uh, darker grays and the lighter gray. And then this was a subsequent scan um, uh, at about six months later showing an improvement. So that's our chemoembolization with BCNU. There's another type of chemoembolization we can use with these kind of marinated beads um, in chemotherapy, the chemotherapy is doxorubicin. Um, and we tend to use this for patients who have large, well-circumscribed tumors, so really kind of those ball-like tumors. Um, and uh, DebDox can work actually very well uh, for these patients. It's not so helpful in patients who have more of like an infiltrative pattern or more of like a miliary, a bunch of small little dots pattern. Um, but you can see here in this patient who had a huge tumor, it's this big thing here kind of with this um, kind of almost... Uh, kind of firework shape uh, vasculature in and out, and this is the angiogram, got DebDox, and you can see this is just 15 months later, you know, the tumor is basically one third the size. Um, and actually, this was another tumor down here that's also shrunk. Um, so DebDox for these types of, of, of tumors can actually work very well. So another type of liver-directed treatment that I want to include is something called ablation. Um, we tend to favor ablation over surgery um, just because in ablation, it's, it's much less invasive. It's not a huge liver surgery, and it actually gets similar results um, because basically you're putting a needle into the tumor and burning it, um, and you actually burn kind of a margin to get a negative margin. Um, and um, we really reserve this for patients with either solitary or oligometastatic disease. So oligometastatic meaning really not more than probably two tumors. And we also use the rule, um, tend to use the rule, they have to be kind of greater than three years after primary diagnosis, because sometimes if tumors develop 
closer to that, it's really just, um, you know, the tip of the iceberg and other ones will develop. And we always say we don't want to just keep going ablating all these tumors because that can kind of leave um, the liver like Swiss cheese. Um, and, um, you know, RFA along with surgery uh, for select patients, you know, has been shown in the literature to be uh, an effective strategy for these patients. And then we also tend to use this sometimes, not just initially, but in patients with what we call a rogue lesion. So say they're getting immunoembo or they're even on another systemic therapy, and there's really one kind of stubborn tumor, two stubborn tumors that are just not responding, but everything else is. Sometimes we'll go in and ablate those. Um, and we did look at a handful of patients using this technique as more of a rogue uh, lesion ablation approach. And, and we did improve it to a two-year survival about 76%. Um, and so, um, and median time to either other liver or extrahepatic disease was eight months. A lot of times it's not that these tumors will regrow, but other ones will oftentimes outside. Um, and here's just again, an example on the right. This was June of 15, had this one tumor. Um, it, you can see it, it's uh, black on the top and then kind of white on diffusion. So meaning active, it got ablated. If you look at the top scan now on the right, it almost looks like the lesion's larger, but that's actually just the ablation cavity. It's it's all dead in there because then if you look at diffusion, you no longer see that bright white dot. So this is a tumor effectively killed by ablation. Um, so now I'll just pivot briefly to some liver-directed therapies that are um, in clinical trial or actually the clinical trials have, have completed and we're kind of waiting you know, for, for potential FDA approval. Um, so one of those is the FOCUS trial, um, otherwise uh, uh, called PHP or percutaneous hepatic perfusion. So for those of you who've never heard about this, it's a much more intense procedure. I, I meant to put up a schematic of kind of what the other, you know, immunoembo, radioembo, chemoembo kind of look like. Um, that's really just a catheter in the groin that goes right to the liver and you can deliver medicine and then your catheters come out. Um, this one is a little more complicated in that there's an infusion catheter in one groin. Uh, the chemotherapy kind of goes in, it filter, it goes through the liver. It's then collected in the venous system of the, when it's still in the liver. And then it's actually pulled outside of the body through a filtering system and then back in. Because the issue is, is that if you let this blood kind of go out to the whole body, the blood that has the, the chemotherapy, this melphalan is very, very strong and can really damage your bone marrow. So you basically perfuse the liver with high doses, but you capture the blood before it has a chance to kind of go to the rest of the body. So um, this was a trial that um, had been ongoing. Uh, we participated in it. Um, and uh, it's the some of the data has been read out already. There's an expanded access program that is ongoing at various centers in the US. Um, this is just a snapshot um, of some of the data. Um, initially, the trial was randomized to a best alternative care, but if you just look at the PHP arm, um, here an overall uh, objective response rate of 31%, disease control of 65, um, and this is what they call the intent to treat population, so a bit similar. And then we look at overall survival, you know, um, median 19 months, um, and then in the intent to treat um, about 20 months. So, you know, um, a, a more involved uh, treatment option, but certainly a liver-directed therapy that, that could be useful for some patients. There's another type of liver-directed therapy that's ongoing now in clinical trial that actually kind of bridges the liver-directed therapy and the systemic therapy world. So remember I, I said caveat asterisks when I first said that these are really limited to just the liver, um, but there are some things that we can do in the liver that can actually control disease 
outside. Uh, technically, immunoembolization, the first treatment that I discussed when it was developed, um, there actually was a reduction in development of extrahepatic disease, um, possibly because of some of the immune system being woken up in the liver at the time of the procedure. Um, this also, this treatment, Perio or SD-101 um, um, by Trisalis is another kind of attempt at that. So this is actually not embolization, but it's rather infusion of something called SD-101, which is a TLR9 agonist. It's an immune stimulant. Um, you can read in the kind of the top arrows, all the different things that, um, that a drug like this can do. Um, and then it's actually being combined with systemic immunotherapy. So the original cohort was a single agent, it just infusion, then we're combining it with PD-1, and then cohort C um, will be a combination with PD-1 and CTLA-4. I didn't go into detail here. Uh, we all know uh, that Drugs like Yervoy and Opdivo or the combination of um, can be used in uveal melanoma. The response rates are not as great as we see in cutaneous. So this is an effort if we kind of do almost the triple therapy, systemic plus this type of liver-directed therapy, we can kind of capitalize um, on, on the uh, efficacy and improve results. Um, and then lastly, I'll just mention the concept of intralesional therapy. Um, so intralesional therapy isn't going through the artery in the groin, but really actually going through the outside and putting a needle directly into the tumor in the liver. Um, so this is one approach that's been um, ongoing. Um, this is slides courtesy from uh, Sapna Patel at MD Anderson. Um, they used a, a drug called PV-10, uh, which is a Rose Bengal, um, and they actually inject, inject it directly into the liver um, to kill liver tumors. And you can see here they call a waterfall plot. So, you know, a good portion of patients did actually have some shrinkage of tumor. Um, and then here's just an example of a patient who had tumors injected um, and had what's called a complete metabolic response. So um, this is using CAT scan and PET, and, and you can see an improvement um, in this tumor, harder to see, um, and this tumor um, almost looks like it's gone there. So um, I briefly mentioned this before, um, you know, kind of Liver-directed therapy, maybe not for everyone. There are some limitations and considerations. Um, you know, for some patients, you know, our best attempts at liver-directed therapy, tumors in the liver just don't respond. Um, you know, some tumors have kind of a difficult arterial blood supply, so it's kind of hard to get to them. Um, you know, I think we're still trying to figure out what the, you know, if there's other resistance mechanisms for getting the drug to these liver tumors that could be helpful. Occasionally, anatomy issues exclude patients, so this comes up in radioembolization mostly. Um, if there's little blood vessels that are leaving the liver that can be cut off, those patients are excluded from radioembolization because it's very unsafe if little tiny radioactive beads get outside the liver. Um, patients with a lot of extrahepatic disease, certainly symptomatic extrahepatic disease, liver-directed therapy may not be the best way to go. Um, ideally, we would have better tools to kind of predict who's going to be one of these great responders and or who needs upfront systemic versus liver directed. And then and then lastly, I can't stress, you really need kind of skilled and dedicated um, interventional radiologists to do this. Um, and then I just wanted to just throw this up here. Um, this is just a snapshot of some of the liver directed therapy uh, clinical trials that are that are ongoing right now. And with that, I will stop, um, share, and see if we can get back. I have to turn my camera back on. Oh, come on. Your camera's good. Can you oh, hear me okay? Is my camera on? 
Yes. Camera's on. on. Okay, great. Wonderful. Okay. Well, give me just a sec. I'm going to actually mute your line just to make sure that I don't get a, yep. a feedback. Okay. So that was uh, really informative. And if it's okay, I'm going to ask you, can we get a copy of those slides to like include as a link um, in the show notes? That way, anybody who needs to just kind of be able to go through and who wants to dive into the data, they can look at those. And then of course, that last slide with the clinical trials that are liver directed relevant, that would definitely be good to have. Um, but I am seeing a good number of questions come in. So do you have a few minutes that we could run through? I think I have like maybe six or seven questions. Shoot. Okay. All right. Let's go for this. Um, and if you just, um, mute, yeah, mute yourself anytime I'm talking and then unmute yourself to talk, <laughs> it'll make it easy. All right. So, um, how long do you wait after doing a liver directed therapy or how long would you recommend you wait, uh, before determining if it's effective and moving on to something else? So it a little bit depends on which liver directed therapy, um, in general, um, I didn't go into too much detail about this, but uh, let's take uh, immunoembolization, for example. If someone comes with tumors in both lobes, um, we only treat one lobe at a time, and we tend to treat the lobes at four-week intervals. So what normally what happens is patient shows up, we decide that's the right treatment, you know, they get, say, their right lobe, often their right lobe treated first, they come back four weeks later, get their left lobe treated, and then we repeat scans. And then it's really based on those scans that we determine the next step. Things like immunoembolization and chemoembolization can be a maintenance program, meaning it's not just you get one cycle and you're done. There are some patients who get IE, especially for years. And, you know, I've had patients who've gone three, four, five years with just getting intermittent monthly immunoembolizations. Chemoembo, you probably can't go much more than, you know, 6, 12, 15, though could be spread out over a period of time because there are patients who then run into blood count issues. It can drop your platelet count and your white blood cell count. Um, so we have to tend to um, separate those. So, you know, I think one good cycle, you know, in a scan, if things are kind of equivocal, you know, maybe there's a little bit of growth here, a little bit of shrinkage there, you know, we may go again, um, you know, but certainly if there's significant growth and that's when you would kind of, you would kind of call it um, and move on, uh, move on to the next. With, with radioembolization, it's a little bit different because it's kind of a one and done. Um, we tend to get a scan about two months after because there's a lot of inflammation early on. Um, and then you make the determination where you go from there. Um, for some of the clinical trials, it's kind of dependent. Okay. That makes sense. Totally makes sense. Thank you. Okay. Next question is, uh, do you, do you suggest doing multiple types of like liver directed therapies in a row? So for example, say doing chemoembolization and then changing to, well, let's, let's just go back to the very beginning. Let's say they were able to do microwave ablation or radio um, ablation. And then after a period of time, they had one or two more spots show up and it was still localized enough that liver directed therapy might've been an option. Like, can you do multiple types of liver directed therapies kind of in a row depending on which they are, I guess, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, yeah, you can. I mean, we tend to have kind of this, you know, thing where you, you go 
you know, I, E, or R, E, followed by I, E, or R, E, followed by chemo embo is kind of our usual kind of thing. But like I said, we have the trial now uh, with using chemo embo kind of more first line so that might get turned on its head. But you can certainly sequence liver-directed therapies. Um, I wouldn't sequence them if there wasn't progression in between. You would only change if there's been progression. But the only limiting thing for sequencing multiple liver-directed therapies um, is that at times there can be some arteriopathy that develops, meaning sometimes the arteries that are in the liver can sometimes get a little, we kind of just say beat up, um, you know, the, especially if they've had a lot of, uh, a lot of embolization. Um, so sometimes that can be a, um, uh, something that prevents additional liver directed therapies. Um, the good news is, is that the liver and liver tumors like to make new blood vessels. So even if you know, someone starts to develop a bit of an arteriopathy, you kind of give them a break and sometimes new blood vessels are formed that you can kind of then gain, gain access to. Um, but you could certainly go, you know, ablation, other types of liver-directed therapy and sequence those. The other thing is that with radioembolization, we do see sometimes in patients who've maybe had it years ago, um, sometimes there can be cirrhotic changes. So sometimes the liver can uh, because with radioembolization, you are kind of radiating, yes, the tumor, but there is some bystander effect. So there are some changes, patients post radioembolization that will have some kind of changes in their liver um, that sometimes can can make other liver-directed therapies maybe a little bit more of a challenge. But we certainly have patients who've gotten the whole the whole gamut. You throw PHP in there. We've had patients who've gotten IERE, chemo, embo, and PHP. Um, so it just depends on the health of the liver. Okay. That makes sense. Um, okay. So this question is uh, asking with embolization, why not just leave the artery feeding the tumor blocked forever and suffocated are the exact words. So, uh, so kind of two things there. One, like I mentioned, unfortunately the tumor will get smart and develop a new blood supply. So even if you block one, it will make a new road. And we tend to think of, and, and so so um, permanent embolization is a thing. Actually, um, one, it's a separate treatment in and of itself called bland embolization. Um, and radioembolization, they are permanent beads. Those little radioactive beads, they get in there and they block that artery. Same with DevDocs. The problem is, again, the tumor will potentially make new blood vessels. And two, if you are trying to deliver a medicine to them, so immunoembolization, you're trying to deliver GMCSF and IL-2, chemoembo, you're trying to get BCNU to that tumor, then you actually need that artery as a as a road as a as a lifeline. So IR will say, you know, they need these vessels kind of open, um, you know, to to be able to get the medicine there, um, essentially. Um, but there is there I there is kind of rationale though for for blocking it kind of intensely, um, but you still maybe want to be able to get medicine to it if the tumor's still alive. Okay. So you mentioned overall survival and just kind of showed some statistics there is overall survival when it's listed in those kinds of that data, is it for that treatment alone, like overall survival from the time that they start a treatment to when they are no longer able to continue that treatment, or is it overall survival from time of diagnosis with METs to time of death? I would say sometimes it kind of depends. Um, okay. but it's that, the I'm only, just yeah, the only chart that showed actually overall survival from time of eye diagnosis, um, was actually, I think the the one from our experience with liver directed show, therapy showing that there's not something called lead time bias that, that, that is 
dependent on when the eye was diagnosed. Um, but most of the time it's like from kind of either enrollment, um, kind of on the, on the, whatever treatment it is. Um, or sometimes we look, if we're looking more globally from the time of metastatic disease. Okay. Wonderful. Oh, hold on. Don't need that. <laughs> it's okay. All right. So with, um, this question says, does age correlate negatively with metastatic disease? Like, are you typically experiencing metastatic spread that's more aggressive if you're on the younger side? And I, I don't know if we know that for sure. I mean, I think there's thought that risk of METs goes up with age. So if we just look at primary eye diagnosis, you know, there is some thought that older folks may have a higher risk of recurrence when it comes to how they fare in the metastatic setting. Um, I don't know if ever, anyone's ever kind of looked at that kind of globally. Um, I think some of what, what we run into is, you know, the, the older you are, the more potential comorbidities you have, and sometimes the less um, robust you are to be able to get some of the more aggressive treatments, you know, I'll, I'll just say. Um, and so if there's other comorbidities, such as heart disease or, um, bad diabetes or something like that, that then prevents you from getting, you know, and this doesn't, isn't just liver directed therapy, but goes for all of our systemic therapies. Um, you know, then obviously that, then that could not be, um, that could be a negative effect. Um, but I mean, I think in general with all cancer and all treatments, age is normally on your side if you're younger, cause you're technically, you're typically healthy otherwise. Um, but so I don't, but I don't think age alone necessarily, um, changes outcome. Okay. That makes sense. So, um, this one is asking about miliary spread and I'm actually not sure I know that word. Um, but do it says do liver directed therapies treat miliary spread or mainly just bulky tumors? So I guess, can you define miliary spread for yes. us first? Well, miliary is refers to really very teeny, tiny, small tumors. So, you know, unfortunately the way that uveal melanoma is actually staged, you know, we don't talk a lot about stage in uveal melanoma. Um, but in, when patients are metastatic, it's actually broken down by what's called M1A, B, and C. And this has to do with size of largest tumor. So M1A is 0 to 3 centimeters, M1B is 3 to 8 centimeters, and M1C is greater than N centimeters for the largest tumor. So you saw a couple of MRIs where you saw patients, tumors this big and then tumors this big. That probably doesn't even tell the whole story. <coughs> for, for folks who come here, you know, we often talk about percent liver involvement. Um, and that's probably even more important than largest tumor size, um, because in miliary disease, you could have 80% of your liver involved by, you know, one centimeter in smaller tumors. And that's, that could be concerning. Um, and, and that sometimes is more difficult to treat than somebody with, you know, one five centimeter tumor, um, because it has to do with the amount of healthy liver there is. Um, and miliary disease, when it comes to liver-directed therapy, you know, I would say things like Debdox, you know, that, that, that beads treatment that I mentioned, probably not the one that we would reach for, but certainly patients with miliary disease can respond to chemoembo. We, we've treated, I didn't show an example, but we've treated a lot of patients with miliary disease with chemoembo, uh, with BCNU, um, with, with some positive, um, positive results. Um, miliary disease, too, is hard to find on a CAT scan. So it's one of the reasons, you know, why, you know, a CAT scan will show an eight centimeter tumor, you know, but will it show these really teeny tiny dots? Sometimes you only see those on a good MRI. So it's one of the other plugs for, uh, for getting surveillance with an MRI. 
Gotcha. Okay. That totally makes sense. And I feel like that's really helpful, um, helpful information. So just for, I guess our final question, um, maybe do we have time for one or two more questions? Okay. Um, so this question is, when is it estimated that Jefferson will be able to offer the PHP for patient treatment? I'm not sure yet. So there to be is determined. A, yeah, to be determined. We'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that. I mean, it is a treatment that I hope that we'll be able to offer. Um, right now, there are a number of institutions around the country. Um, I know, obviously, Moffitt has the most experience with it and is offering it now. Um, hopefully, we will be able to offer it here. Okay, and then this one is asking if, um, and I think this is kind of just a plug for just genetic testing, and I know we have a lot of genetic testing through CASEL that's done, uh, but is there any additional evidence showing, or uh, what is it, how do I say this? It says, um, does additional genetic testing now offered through CASEL, so say someone has extra sample of their tumor from original time of diagnosis, um, does that additional testing that they now offer for that extra sample, um, does that provide any value I guess, for um, someone who's in the surveillance period and they don't have metastatic disease, but they have that opportunity. Would you say that that's, that's valuable information to have? Um, I guess just kind of taking it back to liver-directed therapy, not in regards to, you know, predicting who's going to respond to liver-directed therapy. Um, and I guess when you talk about the extra testing for CASEL, they're offering like... Um, GNAQ, GNA11, SF3B1 status? Is that what the person is? Yeah, so I think that it's I think that it's that, you know, five, six years ago when they were diagnosed, some of those GNAQ sequencing were not offered in the CASEL test. And so now CASEL has come back and said, uh, if you have extra tissue and you want it tested for these specific markers, we can do that if gotcha. you choose. Gotcha. Um, that's that's what they told us earlier this year, I think, at some point. Um, um, yeah, I, I would say I, I don't see it changing management necessarily right now. There is a mutation that if we see it in the primary tumor, um, it may suggest a better kind of outcome. Um, but I, I imagine it's going to track maybe a little bit with the initial kind of class one, class two. So I don't know if it would change surveillance. And certainly if it's many years out now, you know, you may have gotten over that two, three, four, five year hump. So I don't know what the information, how that information would be helpful now. But things like SF3B1, uh, which is a mutation that we think um, predicts kind of better outcomes or certainly in the metastatic setting, patients tend to maybe do better. Um, and if they recur, they might recur a little later. Um, things like IFACs, or um, as we call it, but it stands for something a little bit different, those patients have a lower risk of, of recurrence, whereas obviously things like BAP1 um, have a higher risk of recurrence when it's in the eye. And then GNAQ, GNA11, um, you know, it's kind of more of just the, the initial driver mutation. It doesn't necessarily change prognosis that we know of for sure. There are some clues here and there. And um, Anyone who wants to know more about genetic profiling of tumor and how it may impact treatment, um, we, we put out a publication probably about nine months ago, and I think also available online is my ASCO presentation from 2020, 20, 20, 20, I think, um, on the mutational landscape of melanoma, and I go into all of, the, all of those mutations um, in, in great detail. Okay, wonderful. And I apologize. I thought I was muted as I was trying to type down the name of that presentation. So if you heard the, 
in the background. The and I can send you, I can send you the link to it that you guys can. Okay, perfect. Yeah, that would be great. So, um, Dr. Orloff, this has been amazing and we are so grateful for your time and your expertise. Um, I feel like I'm one of those people that as a patient myself, I find it incredibly valuable to have someone, um, in the physician field that I'm working with or that I'm talking to who is very knowledgeable, but just also confident in what they're doing. So thank you for being one of those people and for volunteering your time today for a little bit. Um, we're going to go ahead and let you go back to the rest of your day in the future meetings. But um, thank you guys, everyone who is here live. And thank you again to Dr. Orloff. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast brought to you by Castle Biosciences. Please be sure to subscribe. And if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Acure Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.